Psalm 97, 11 through 12 says, Light shines on the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord. You are righteous and praise his holy name. Why do we light the third candle? Let's respond together. The third candle reminds us that Jesus' birth brings joy to all who believe in him. So we join all of creation in celebrating him. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 10 and 11a. For, our, for to us a child is born, to a son is given, and he will be called Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government, and peace there will be no end, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7a. During his time on earth, Jesus restored peace everywhere he went. He calmed tumultuous storms. He brought healing to the sick. He raised the dead to life. He forgave sinners their sins. Isaiah prophetically calls the coming Messiah the Prince of Peace. And the angels announcing the birth of Jesus declare, On earth peace to those who, on whom his favor rests. His first coming began this process of restoring peace between us and God. His second coming will bring wholeness as he intended his creation to be when he first set the universe in motion. The Prince of Peace brings us peace with God. The end of spirituality, enmity, and striving to secure God's favor through our good works. As well as peace of mind and heart a state of being at rest despite difficult circumstances because we know that God is in control. In fact, the very night Jesus was betrayed, in his last teaching moments with the disciples, Jesus promised them peace, not as the world offers it, but as only he can give. No matter what would happen, they could rest and enjoy sweet fellowship with God which would then create ripple effects in their relationships with the world around them. Though the world might be caught up in anxiety and worry, we can rest securely in the knowledge that Jesus is making all things right. And we can participate with him in bringing peace to a broken world as we look forward to the future kingdom of peace. Today we light a candle to remind us that Jesus' birth brings joy to all who believe in him. So we join all creation in celebrating him. Matthew 2, 10 through 11a. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Jason and Jennifer, let's sing together.
Okay. 
King, risen, the one who brings peace to the world in the middle of chaos. And you show love. You show the world that you made them and you love them and you pursue them. You make a way for them to be clean. We worship you, holy, holy Jesus. May every single person know the joy of being known by you, loved by you, have your way. Thank you for the word that we get to hear from Pastor Mike. It's your word, Lord. Help us to be humble, to receive it, be changed by it, do something with it. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. Love that song. And we sang at the end, O Holy Night. So good. Well, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, that's where we're going to be starting. We're actually going to be all over the book of Matthew to this morning, but we're going to be beginning at Matthew chapter 2. And as we're turning there, I just want to say a couple things. First of all, how incredible was that, seeing uh, the kids sing uh, those uh, Christmas songs to us this morning? Amazing. I mean, just uh, First of all, I don't know what kind of backroom deals were struck or threats were made in those classrooms to get those kids to be so stinking organized. I've never seen anything like that in my life, so kudos to the teachers for, for uh, all those details and, and everything working out like that, and uh, to the kids. I know they've been practicing. I think they're getting a little sick of these songs. They've been practicing for a long time, um, but man, what a blessing to us as a church, and just thinking about seeing all these kids on the stage up here and just thinking about uh, the future of the church and how important that is, so... Uh, so, so cool, and I trust that you were blessed by that, um, just like I was. Secondly, um, super excited for our Christmas party tonight. We've been talking about just a time for us to be together in fellowship as a church family. So uh, Emily, my wife, has been kind of heading up a lot of the planning for it, and I know many of you have been working hard to get it ready as well. So I want to say thank you to everyone who's been working hard uh, for it, and I hope that you'll be able to join us tonight uh, for this time of fellowship together. And then finally, before we jump in, I have a, this, a little a nugget for you. I guess this is free, so I'm not going to, you know, you don't have to go back and put five more dollars in the offering box. This is totally, this one's on me, okay? So I, I'm just joking about that, by the way. But uh, so I, in my quiet time this morning, I was in the book of First Samuel chapter 12. And sometimes you're in the Word and a verse just kind of grabs your heart. And uh, I know you've had, I'm sure you've had that experience before, but I just had that experience this morning uh, in First Samuel chapter 12. And so I just wanted to read this verse and I I don't know if there's uh, anyone in here who needs to hear this verse, but 1 Samuel chapter 12 is um, Samuel's farewell address to the people of Israel, and he's telling them, you know, you guys have messed up in the past, but if you follow the Lord, if you seek God, if you obey his commands, then things will go well for you. And then he says this in verse 16, and this verse just kind of grabbed my heart this morning. It says, now therefore, stand still. And see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. I love that. Stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. I think so often we just, uh, as Christians, certainly there's the temptation as pastors to think that God's, you know, only, God is only going to be able to work if I do these right things, right? This thing is only going to get fixed if I do what, everything I need to do. And I love that. In 1 Samuel, we're just reminded, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. You think about the incarnation, Jesus coming to an unsuspecting world. He came, 
did a great thing before our eyes. So if that's you this morning, if you need to hear that, maybe that's just me that needed to hear that this morning, but I trust that that's a blessing to you. Um, We're called to stand still and allow the Lord to work. God will always blow your mind with the things that he does. He always does more than we can ever imagine. We're called just to stand still and see the great thing that the Lord has done and will do. Amen? All right. Well, like I said, that was all bonus sermon. Now let's jump into the meat of things. But before we do that, let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us this morning. Heavenly Father, God, what a joy, what a delight to be together this morning to worship you. We sing about the holy night when Christ was born. We prepare to celebrate Christmas Think about what that means. Think about the advent and all that that entails, God. We just praise you, God. You always work in ways that are beyond what we can ever imagine. So, Lord, help us to not have too small of a view of who you are or what you can do. All the time, God, I confess, I have too small of a view of a picture of what, who, who you are and what you can do. So just expand that, God, for all of us. Turn our eyes upward, our hearts, open them up to what you want to do in us and through us, God. This morning, as we talk about joy, we just ask that we would be filled with your joy, God. That we would know the joy in following Christ. If there's anyone in here this morning who doesn't know that joy, God, I just ask that by your spirit, it's only by your spirit that it's possible, that by your spirit you would move in their hearts. And they would understand the incredible joy, what it means to follow Jesus. God, we love you so much. We thank you that you love us even more. You are so faithful, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this year, our family, like uh, many of you guys, or you kind of did the multiple Christmas celebration at different parts of the family thing. And over Thanksgiving, we celebrated, we were in Ohio, my family lives in Ohio, we celebrated Christmas with my family the day after Thanksgiving. And uh, so we opened presents, so we had Thanksgiving, then we immediately switched into Christmas mode. Some, some of you do this over Thanksgiving as well. And so we opened presents on Thanksgiving. And one of the presents that uh, Owen, our son, received was this little music box that plays Christmas carols. He calls it, I always say, get your music box and he's he calls it his music church because it's shaped like a church so he says it's not my music box it's my music church you say okay well whatever it is but the, the he uh he loves this thing like this is the greatest thing that he has ever received in his life i uh i don't understand why i didn't know he loved christmas music that much but every day since we got home with this thing the first thing he does when he wakes up in the morning is plugs it in and there's a little knob to turn it on and, and he turns it on way too loud and then we go tell him to turn it down a little bit and so he turns it down and and he has christmas music playing all day, every day. So in the Nafziger house, we are Christmas music nonstop this year. That given me a new appreciation and sympathy for any of you who work in like a department store where there's Christmas music playing in the background all the time. But the kid loves it, and I'm a little bit worried about, I don't know if he's aware that after Christmas we're going to have to put this thing away until next year. I, I, uh, I hope he's uh, mentally preparing for that. But anyway, so uh, over this year, over this Christmas season, I've noticed as I've listened to more Christmas music this year than I probably have in every other year in my life combined, is that there are many lines and lyrics that we sing in Christmas songs that if we are honest, we don't have any idea what we're saying, right? And we could probably figure it out if, we, if you like really sat and thought about it, but there's a lot of things that we just take for granted in Christmas songs. We don't know what they mean. So like in the song Silent Night, we sing round yon virgin, mother and child. What are we talking about? Are we talking about the shape of Mary, that she's a round? I don't know what yon means, but she also just gave birth to Jesus. So maybe, one, I, maybe you can explain that one to me after the service. But there's a whole bunch of examples of this, right? If I asked you to hang the shining star up on the highest bough, would you have any idea where I wanted you to put it? You would not know what I wanted you to do. If I asked you to troll the ancient Yuletide carol, would you know what I was asking you to do in that moment? Nope, I don't have any idea what that means. Don't even get me started on the 12 days of Christmas, the most nonsensical Christmas song ever written, probably. 
And then there's one more that always puzzles me, and it, it was, I hadn't really thought about it before because it's actually the front end of one of my favorite Christmas songs, and it's actually the title of one of my favorite Christmas songs, but I don't know what it means. God rest ye merry gentlemen. What is that talking about? Who are the gentlemen? Why are they merry? What does it mean, God rest ye? I don't know. Again, if you know this, please uh, explain it to me after the service. I'd love to understand what I'm singing. But while the first line is confusing, I love the words to this song. God rest ye, merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember, Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power as we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. I sang to you last week. I'm not going to sing to you two weeks in a row, so I'm just reading the lyrics. Tidings of comfort and joy. That word tidings, I had to look up. It means good news. Good news of comfort and joy. That's the gospel right there. Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. Why? To save us all from Satan's power as we were gone astray. And this is good news of comfort and joy joy. We talk about joy a lot during the Christmas season, don't we? Joy. What does it mean to have joy? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to do things a little bit different this morning. Normally around here at Rock Prairie, we take one passage on a Sunday morning. We try to dig everything out of it that we possibly can. And this week, we're doing something a little bit different. We're actually going to take that word, joy, and we're going to trace it all throughout the book of Matthew. So I have this great uh, Bible software program called Logos. And uh, what I did this week is I typed the word joy in and, and searched it in Matthew. And I looked for every instance of the word joy in the book of Matthew. And uh, so we're going to talk about every single one this morning. There's 35 instances of joy, and so it'll be a little while. I'm just kidding. There's only five. It's not going to take that long. We're going to talk about every instance of the word joy in the book of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, like I said, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. We will have all the verses on the screen this morning because we're going to be going pretty quickly through them all. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 2. And that's the first instance of joy that we see. And we just read it in our Advent reading. And it comes through the story of the wise men, which is an appropriate place for us to start in this Christmas series. The wise men are a familiar part of the Christmas story, and yet there's a lot that we don't know about the wise men. We don't know, for instance, how many there were, as much as we sing, we three kings, right? We don't know that there were three. There were three gifts, which I think is where they come up with three kings, but we don't know how many there were, and we don't know who they were. We don't know their names, but there are some things that we do know. We know that these were very important men They were high-ranking officials with power and influence, and they traveled hundreds of miles to find this king who had been born. They came from the east. They were Gentiles. They were not Jewish, and yet they came, they traveled hundreds of miles to find the king of the Jews who had been born. And so we're going to pick up the story after they meet with King Herod in verse 9. It says this, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So they had been following the star from the east all the way to Jerusalem. The star that was a sign in the sky that the king had been born. Now this is something that kind of just blows our mind when it comes to the way that God works. Because these were like pagan astrologers. And yet God put a true sign in the sky, a star that the Savior had been born. And so the wise men follow this star all the way to Jerusalem. And they get to Jerusalem, and the star unbelievably starts moving. And so they follow the star to Bethlehem. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When they see the star leading them to Jesus, they rejoice with great joy. And when they finally see him, they fall down on their faces and they worship him. And they offer gifts fit 
for a king. Now imagine that you're one of these wise men who'd been traveling. You'd heard these stories of this Jewish Messiah who would come, and then you see this star in the sky, and you know that that means that he's arrived. So you get to Jerusalem all the way, and then you see the star start to move, and you can't believe it. I don't know what the wise men knew about Jesus. They knew he was the king of the Jewish people, did they know he was also the savior of the world? I don't know. Did they know he was the son of God? We know. And so our response, when we come face to face with this incredible truth that Jesus came to save his people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue, our response to this is joy. It's to fall on our faces in worship, to offer what we have, to give ourselves as an offering, a living sacrifice to this king. Joy, when you finally see Christ face to face, leads to worship him. I hope that's true of you this morning, if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with him. I hope that that joy leads you then to bring your heart to a place of worship like it did for the wise men. Joy in Christ leads to worship. Second, the second thing we see in the book of Matthew when it comes to joy is that joy perseveres in trial. Joy perseveres through trial. Our next passage comes from Matthew chapter 13. So you can fast forward a few chapters to chapter 13. And this is the section where Jesus tells many parables. He teaches the people by telling them stories, and the stories represent spiritual realities. And so he begins with the parable of the sower. This should be a familiar parable to many of you. We've talked about this parable before. The sower sows seed in different places. And depending on where that seed lands is what uh, allows its response to that seed. So so the seed that lands on the path doesn't grow at all. The seed that lands on the rocky soil grows and then dies. But the seed that lands on the good soil grows up and is healthy. And so we're going to pick up and talk about the rocky soil because that's where we see the second instance of the word joy in Matthew. So look at verse 5 says this, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Now we're lucky because the parable of the sower is one of the parables that Jesus explains exactly what he meant when he was talking uh, later on. So we don't have to wonder what he meant by this. He explains the meaning in verse 20. You look there with me. It says this, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now this passage actually serves as a warning to us. And this is what it's saying. It's possible to get really excited about Jesus for a little bit. It's possible to get really on fire for following Jesus right away. But that faith is going to bear out depending on how we respond to persecution. And so while it's possible to respond initially to the gospel with joy, Jesus says by the time persecution arises, these people realize this wasn't what they signed up for, and they fall away. Now, I think it's actually possible for the reverse to happen as well, isn't it? For us to cling to Jesus only when we're facing trials in our life. And then when those trials subside, so too does our devotion to the Lord. Verse 21 says, he has no root in himself. Talking about the person who falls away during trial. He has no root in himself. Your faith has to have a substance to it. It has to have a depth to it. Truly following Jesus means being deeply rooted in the gospel. It can't be a surface level faith. Something that you just come back to when you want to. There's a deep root that takes place when you follow Jesus. So let me say this morning, don't let your faith have shallow roots. 
Let's take this as a warning. It's possible to, to shoot up right away when you first hear about Jesus, but fall away later on. Don't let that be true of you. Sink your roots deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Persecution and trial shouldn't drive us away from Jesus. It should drive us further in to our relationship with Jesus. In fact, that trial that we go through is often what allows our roots to sink even deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ, isn't it? You've had that experience before. Relationship with Jesus is at one level, and then you go through something maybe unthinkably difficult. And what does it do? It's going to do one of two things. It's going to drive you away from Jesus, or it's going to drive you further in. True joy, as opposed to the false joy of just being excited about Jesus at first, but falling away later on. True joy sinks its roots deep into the gospel. So we can do what we said when we first studied James a while back. Remember, what are we supposed to do? When we face trials of many kinds, count it all Count it all joy. We can do that when we sink our roots deep into the gospel of Jesus Christ. True joy perseveres through trial. Third, the book of Matthew, we see this. I love this. The joy of salvation is worth losing everything for. The joy of salvation is worth losing everything. The joy of salvation makes everything else in life just pale in comparison to following Jesus. We see that just a few verses later in the parable of the hidden treasure. Jesus says this in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. What Jesus is saying is that the gospel is worth everything. It is so beautiful. It is so majestic. It brings such an incomprehensible joy, an incomparable joy, that everything else that you have is just worthless in comparison. Like the little boy who comes down the stairs on Christmas, and he's been asking for a bike, right, for, for months and months and months, and he comes down the stairs on Christmas, and what's he see with that nice shiny red bow is that brand new bicycle. I don't know. Do kids still want bikes for Christmas? Maybe this is an old reference, but anyways, he sees that brand new bicycle. What does he think about that sweater and that new pair of jeans that are wrapped up in the other presents? Who cares? I got my new bike. It's a silly metaphor, but how much... More true is that of the Savior. Nothing else is worth comparing to him. This is why we have such a creative enemy because all he wants to do is put one thing after another, after another, after another in front of your face to distract you from the pearl of great price. You say, well, this thing is actually worth more than that. The gospel is worth giving up everything for. Paul says it like this in Philippians 3.8, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. I love how David Platt puts it. He says, because the kingdom of heaven is something worth losing everything for, we joyfully let go of all things in order to passionately take hold of one thing. We joyfully let go of all things in order to passionately take hold of one thing. This is what I want for you as your pastor. I want you to just passionately take hold of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just because I'm a pastor and that's what I'm supposed to want. Because it's worth it. It's worth it. And this is what I battle in my own flesh as well. Those distractions of wanting other things when the pearl of great price is the only one of true value and it makes everything else look worthless in comparison. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the joy of knowing him is greater than any other joy you could possibly have. And we're blessed with many good joys in this life. Those things are just a taste of the true joy that's found in Jesus Christ. Amen? The joy of salvation is worth giving up everything else. Fourth, 
Eternal joy is the reward of the faithful. Eternal joy is the reward for those who are faithful. We're going to fast forward now to Matthew chapter 25. So if you're following along, you can go ahead there and we're going to be in verse 21. This is the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. Jesus tells this parable. A master goes away. He says, I'm going to go away for a while. And he gives three servants different amounts of money, talents, so they're called, different amounts of money. And he asks them to be faithful stewards over his investment. So the one uh, with five goes and he makes good investments and it grows. And the one that he gives two talents to goes and makes good investments and that grows as well. But the one who he gave only one talent to, he had a different view of God from the other two servants. The other two servants found joy in following him. But the servant with one talent thought that his master was cruel and difficult demanded unreasonable things from him, was hard-hearted. That's what he thought about his master. And so in in fear of losing the one talent, he goes and he buries it in the ground. The servant, or the master returns, excuse me, and he sees that his two servants have been faithful to work to increase what the master has given them. And so to them, the master says this. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But to the third servant, the master said this, For to everyone who has, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The first two servants found joy in serving their master, but the third servant found his master to be hard and difficult, and so he buried his talent in the ground and wasted what the master had given him. The truth is that a failure to use what you have to serve God really reveals in your heart a lack of love and desire for God himself. What you do reveals what's going on in your heart. For followers of Jesus, eternal joy is your reward. Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so my question for you this morning is, do you love being a servant of Jesus? Do you find joy in serving him? Do you love working hard for his glory? Do you find great love in serving others and serving the church and in giving what God has given you faithfully to the ministry of the Lord? Do you find joy in that or do you see it as a hard duty? Do you see it as difficult? Do you see his demands as unreasonable and unnecessary? What you do with your life shows your view of God. And if you view God as a hard master, you're not going to want to serve him. You're either going to neglect serving him altogether, you're going to serve him with this begrudging spirit in your heart. Let me be clear here. Jesus himself is the reward. That's what Jesus says. Jesus is the reward. Enter into the joy of your master. So following Jesus isn't like stomaching your plate of vegetables so that way you can get to dessert. If you don't love spending time with and serving Jesus on earth, you're not going to like heaven very much. I say that again. If you don't find great joy in serving Jesus with your life on earth, you're not going to find great joy in heaven. I'm not saying you need to earn your way to heaven, right? By how you serve Jesus on earth. Hopefully you've heard enough of my sermons to know that that's not what we believe at all. And if you're new here this morning, please understand that's not what we believe. We're not talking about earning your way to get to heaven. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Full stop. That's it. But what I'm saying is that this is a matter of where your heart is at. 
The unfaithful servant saw his master as cold and hard to follow. And he was wrong about that. That's the point. He was wrong about his master. He got it all wrong. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what's true about God. If you're following God, you will see that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And the things he asks of you are not unreasonable or unnecessary demands, but they're things that bring you joy. So the question this morning is, do you find joy in serving the Lord? Because if you don't find joy in it now, you're not going to find joy in it in eternity. Because eternal joy in Christ is the reward for those who faithfully follow Jesus in this life, who use their gifts and talents and abilities and resources to gladly and joyfully serve him in this age. Those are the people who will do the same in the age to come. Eternal joy is the reward of the faithful. Well, finally, the last instance of joy that we see in the book of Matthew is in the end of Matthew, after the greatest event in the history of mankind has occurred, which is the resurrection. And what we see is that the resurrection of Jesus makes way for ultimate joy. So turn with me in Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Mary and Martha are heading for Jesus' tomb, and they're unaware of what has taken place. They're expecting to find his dead body in the tomb, but what they find is much, much, much greater. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Imagine hearing that news. What would your response be? Verse 8, they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Christmas is a wonderful time of year. But it's only wonderful because Easter happened. If it weren't for Easter, Christmas wouldn't mean anything we celebrate christmas jesus coming to earth we celebrate christmas with an eye toward easter because the resurrection of jesus is what changed everything jesus came to earth as a baby but he came to die on a cross why why did he do that because you sinned because i sinned And because of our sin, we've been separated from God, and we rightly deserve to die. Ever since Adam and Eve ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been separated from God. And that's the story of the Bible. From Genesis 3 onward, it's all about God's redemption of his people. Because the good news is God doesn't leave his people there in their sin. God is not a God who abandons his people. Even when they've sinned against him, even when they deserve to die. No, Emmanuel means God with us. God sent his son to save his people from their sins. So how do you become a part of God's people? If you believe. If you believe. 
The Bible tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you're saved, then you'll be filled with an inexpressible joy. The gospel is amazing. God sent his only son to repair that relationship so that we can be restored to know him and love him and be filled with joy for eternity. Joy that leads to living a life of worship like the wise men who saw Jesus and fell to their knees. A joy that doesn't give up hope when going through trial, but that deepens its roots in the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of trial. Having hope in Jesus is the only thing that can get us through those trials. Filled with a joy that is worth trading everything you have for because it's so much greater than anything else. It's a joy that is the reward of faithfully following Jesus for the rest of your life that we should long for. We should long for that day when we hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's just be real. We don't know when that will be. None of us knows how long we have on this earth. So don't delay. If you're not following Jesus, don't presume that you have another day. It is a terrible thing to get to the end of your life and to hear Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. When he sent his son to die for you, to forgive you from your sins, no matter what it is, no matter what, it doesn't matter. Jesus removes those things as far as the east is from the west and he cleanses you as white as snow, but you gotta believe. You gotta believe. So if you're not following Jesus, make today the day that you believe. You start following him. Allow him to fill your heart with that radiant joy that is incomparable to anything else. A joy that wouldn't be possible if he didn't first come to earth as a baby in a manger in order to live that sinless life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we should have died so we could look forward to endless life with him. My king did that for me, and he did that for you. Jesus did that for you. And if you believe in him, he did it for you. If you aren't yet following Jesus, start today you don't know what that means or what that looks like, I'll be right up here after the service. I'd love for you to come up, and I would just love to pray with you. If you are following Jesus already, let's thank God for the joy that we have, a joy that has come to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue for those who follow him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we thank you, we praise you that you sent your son to die that death that we deserve. He didn't deserve it. We did. And he took the punishment for us so that we could live forever with him. That's the gospel. That is the good news. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has made a way. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here this morning that does not know the incomprehensible joy of following Jesus, I ask that today would be the day of their salvation. You can only do that by your spirit, God. So we just pray that the spirit will move in their hearts. Do a mighty work. Do a miracle right now, God. Do a miracle God, for those of us who are following Jesus, we just ask that you would fill us with that joy. A joy that goes deeper than our emotions, deeper than our feelings. We don't always feel that, God, and yet your joy goes beyond that, so root us deep in the gospel so that we can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Do a mighty work, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.